Chapter Ten of the Headless Horseman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Headless Horseman: A Strange Tale of Texas by Maine Reed. Chapter Ten. Casa del Corvo. The estate or hacienda, known as Casa del Corvo extended along the wooded bottom of the Leona River for more than a league, and twice that distance southwards across the contiguous prairie. The house itself, usually, though not correctly, styled the Hacienda, stood within long cannon range of Fort Inge, from which its white walls were partially visible, the remaining portion being shadowed by tall forest trees that skirted the banks of the stream. Its site was peculiar, and no doubt chosen with a view to defense, for its foundation had been laid at a time when Indian assailants might be expected, as indeed they might be, and often are, at the present hour. There was a curve of the river closing upon itself, like the shoe of a racehorse, or the arc of a circle, three parts complete, the cord of which, or a parallelogram, traced upon it, might be taken as the ground plan of the dwelling. Hence the name Casa del Corvo, the house of the curve, curved river. The façade, or entrance side, fronted towards the prairie, the latter forming a noble lawn that extended to the edge of the horizon, in comparison with which an imperial park would have shrunk into the dimensions of a paddock. The architecture of Casa del Corvo, like that of other large country mansions in Mexico, was of a style that might be termed Morisco-Mexican, being a single story in height with a flat roof, azote, spouted and parapeted all around, having a courtyard inside the walls termed patio, open to the sky, with a flagged floor, a fountain, and a stone stairway leading up to the roof, a grand entrance gateway, the saguan, with a massive wooden door, thickly studded with bolt heads, and two or three windows on each side, defended by a grill of strong iron bars, called reja. These are the chief characteristics of a Mexican hacienda, and Casa del Corvo differed but little from the type almost universal throughout the vast territories of Spanish America. Such was the homestead that adorned the newly acquired estate of the Louisiana planter that had become his property by purchase. As yet no change had taken place in the exterior of the dwelling, nor much in its interior, if we accept the personnel of its occupants. A physiognomy, half Anglo-Saxon, half Franco-American, presented itself in courtyard and corridor, where formerly were seen only faces of pure Spanish type, and instead of the rich sonorous language of Andalusia, was now heard the harsher guttural of the semi-Teutonic tongue, occasionally diversified by the sweeter accentuation of Creolian French. 
outside the walls of the mansion, in the village-like cluster of yucca-thatched huts which formerly gave housing to the peons and other dependents of the hacienda, the transformation was more striking. Where the tall, thin vaquero, in broad-brimmed hat of black glaze and checkered serape, strode proudly over the sward, his spurs tinkling at every step, was now met the authoritative overseer in blue jersey or blanket coat, his whip cracking at every corner, where the red children of the Aztec and Anahuac, scantily clad in tanned sheepskin, could be seen with sad, solemn aspect, lounging listlessly by their wakalis, or trotting silently along, were now heard the black sons and daughters of Ethiopia, from morn till night, chattering in their gay gumbo, or with song and dance seemingly contradicting the idea that slavery is a heritage of unhappiness. Was it a change for the better upon the estate of Casa del Corvo? There was a time when the people of England would have answered no, with a unanimity and emphasis calculated to drown all disbelief in their sincerity. Alas, for human weakness and hypocrisy! Our long-cherished sympathy with the slave proves to have been only a tissue of sheer dissembling. Led by an oligarchy, not the true aristocracy of our country, for these are too noble to have yielded to such deep designings, but an oligarchy composed of conspiring plebes, who have smuggled themselves into the first places of power in all the four estates, guided by these purient conspirators against the people's rights, England has proved untrue to her creed so loudly proclaimed, truculent to the trust reposed in her by the universal acclaim of the nations. On a theme altogether different dwelt the thoughts of Louise Poindexter, as she flung herself into a chair in front of her dressing-glass, and directed her maid, Florinda, to prepare her for the reception of guests, expected soon to arrive at the hacienda. It was the day fixed for the housewarming, and about an hour before the time appointed for dinner to be on the table. This might have explained a certain restlessness observable in the air of the young Creole, especially observed by Florinda, but it did not. The maid had her own thoughts about the cause of her mistress's disquietude as was proved by the conversation that ensued between them. Scarce could it be called a conversation. It was more as if the young lady were thinking aloud, with her attendant acting as an echo. During all her life, the Creole had been accustomed to look upon her sable handmaid as a thing from whom it was not worth while concealing her thoughts, any more than she would from the chairs, the table, the sofa, or any other article of furniture in the apartment. There was but the difference of Florinda, being a little more animated and companionable, and the advantage of her being able to give a vocal response to the observations addressed to her. For the first ten minutes after entering the chamber, Florinda had sustained the brunt of the dialogue on indifferent topics, her mistress only interfering with an occasional ejaculation. "'Oh, Miss Louie,' pursued the negress, 
as her fingers fondly played among the lustrous tresses of her young mistress's hair, how beautiful your hair am. Like the long Spanish moss that hang from the cypress tree, only that is of a different color and shine like the sugar house molasses. As already stated, Louise Poindexter was a Creole. After that, it is scarce necessary to say that her hair was of a dark color, and, as the sable maid in rude speech had expressed it, luxuriant as Spanish moss. It was not black, but of a rich glowing brown, such as may be observed in the tinting of a tortoise shell, or the coat of a winter-trapped sable. Ah, continued Florinda, spreading out an immense hank of the hair that glistened like a chestnut against her dark palm. If I had that lovely hair on my head, instead of this old curly wool, I'd fetch em all to my feet, every one of them. What do you mean, girl? inquired the young lady, as if just aroused from some dreamy reverie. What's that you've been saying? Fetch them to your feet? Fetch whom? Nah, now you know what this child mean. Pon honor, I do not. Make him love me. That is what I should have said. But whom? All the white gentlemen, the young planter, the officers of the fort, all of them. With your hair, Miss Louie, I could them all make conquests. Ha, 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 laughed the young lady, amused at the idea of Florinda figuring under that magnificent chevelure. You think with my hair upon your head you would be invincible among the men? No, missus, not your hair alone, but with your sweet face, your skin, white as the alabaster, your tall figure, your grand look. Oh, Miss Louie, you am so splendidly beautiful. I hear them white gentlemen say so. I no need hear em say it. I see that for myself. You're learning to flatter, Florinda. No, indeed. Never a word of flattery. Never a word, I swear it. By the apostles, I swear it. To one who looked upon her mistress, the earnest asseveration of the maid was not necessary to prove the sincerity of her speech, however hyperbolical it might appear. To say that Louise Poindexter was beautiful would only be to repeat the universal verdict of the society that surrounded her. A single glance was sufficient to satisfy anyone upon this point, strangers as well as acquaintances. It was a kind of beauty that needed no discovering, and yet it is difficult to describe it. The pen cannot portray swell of face. Even the pencil could convey but faint idea of it. For no painter, however skilled, could represent upon cold canvas the glowing ethereal light that emanated from her eyes, and appeared to radiate over her countenance. Her features were purely classical, resembling those of female beauty chosen by Phidias and Praxiteles. And yet, in all the Grecian Pantheon, there is no face to which it could have been likened, for it was not the countenance of a goddess, but something more attractive to the eye of man, the face of a woman. A suspicion of sensuality, apparent in the voluptuous curving of the lower lip, still more pronounced in the prominent rounding beneath the cheeks, while depriving the countenance 
of its pure spiritualism did not perhaps detract from its beauty. There are men who, in this departure from the divine type, would have perceived a superior charm, since in Louise Poindexter they would have seen not a divinity to be worshipped, but a woman to be loved. Her only reply, vouchsafed to Florinda's asseveration, was a laugh, careless though not incredulous. The young Creole did not need to be reminded of her beauty. She was not unconscious of it, as could be told by her taking more than one long look in the mirror before which her toilet was being made. The flattery of the negress scarce called up an emotion, certainly not more than she might have felt at the fawning of a pet spaniel, and she soon after surrendered herself to the reverie from which the speech had aroused her. Florinda was not silenced by observing her mistress's air of abstraction. The girl had evidently something on her mind, some mystery, of which she desired the eclaircissement, and was determined to have it. Ah, she continued, as if talking to herself, if Florinda had half the charm of young missus, she for nobody cares, she for nobody have to do deep sigh. Sigh, repeated her mistress suddenly, startled by the speech. What do you mean by that? Pas du, Miss Louis. Florinda, not so blind, you think, nor so deaf, neither. She see you long time sit in the same place. You never speak no word. You only have to sigh, the long, deep sigh. You never do that in the old plantation in Louisiana. Florinda, I fear you are taking leave of your senses, or have left them behind you in Louisiana. Perhaps there's something in the climate here that affects you. Is that so, girl? Pas du, Miss Louis, that question of yourself ask. You know be angry, cause I speak so plain. Florinda, your slave, she love you like a black sister. She no happy to hear you sigh. That's why she have to take the freedom. You no be angry with me? Certainly not. Why should I be angry with you, child? I am not. I didn't say I was. Only you are quite mistaken in your ideas. What you have seen or heard could only be a fancy of your own. As for sighing, hi-ho, I have something else to think of just now. I have to entertain about a hundred guests, nearly all strangers, too, among them the young planters and officers whom you would entangle if you had my hair. Ha, ha! I don't desire to enmesh them, not one of them. So twist it up as you like, without the semblance of a snare in it. Oh, Miss Louie, you so speak, inquired the negress, with an air of evident interest. You say none of them gentlemen care for you? Dem are two, three, very, very handsome. One planter there be, and two of the officers, all young gentlemen. You know the three, I mean. All of them have been tentative to you. You sure, Missa, taint one of them that make you sigh? Sigh again. <laughs> but come, Florinda, we're losing time. Recollect, I've got to be in the drawing-room to receive a hundred guests. I must have at least half an hour to compose myself into an attitude befitting such an extensive reception. 
No fear, Miss Louie, no fear. I, you toilet it, making time, plenty of time. No much trouble, you dress. Pa, do in any dress you look splendid. You be the belle if you dress like one of the field hands of the plantation. What a flatterer you are grown, Florinda. I shall begin to suspect that you are after some favor. Do you wish me to intercede and make up your quarrel with Pluto? No, Missa, I befriend never more with Pluto. He show himself such a great coward when come that storm on the black prairie. And, Miss Louie, what we both do if that young gentleman with the red horse no come riding that way? If he had not, Sheriff Florinda, it is highly probable that neither of us should now have been here. Oh, Missa, wasn't he a real fancy man, that air? You see him, beautiful face. You see him thick hair, just the color of your own. Only curled little bit like mine. Talk of the young planter, or dem officer at the fort. The black folks say he no good for nothing, like them. He only poor white trash. Who care for that? He am some sort of man. Could this child make sigh? Ah, the very, very sort. Up to this point the young Creole had preserved a certain tranquility of countenance. She tried to continue it, but the effort failed her. Whether by accident or design, Florinda had touched the most sensitive chord in the spirit of her mistress. She would have been loath to confess it, even to her slave, and it was a relief to her when loud voices heard in the courtyard gave a colorable excuse for terminating her toilet, along with the delicate dialogue upon which she might have been constrained to enter. End of Chapter 10 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Real Medina, Texas.